to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's American Bar Association podcast, The New Frontier, focused on technology, cybersecurity, and data privacy. I am your host, Jordan Fisher, the Global Privacy Team Lead at Beckage, and I am extremely excited to welcome our guest on today, all the way from the not-so-sunny Ireland, <laughs> a little bit rainy today. Um, Emerald, welcome to the show. I'm very excited to have you on. <laughs> Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so I'd like to start by just having you introduce yourself, your current role um, to the audience so, um, so everyone gets to know who you are. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Emerald DeLeo. I am the Global Head of Privacy at Logitech. I've been with Logitech for about two years now, and I was very excited to be promoted to this role about two months ago. Thanks to hopefully a little bit of talent, but also obviously a lot of support from, from my team, from leadership. Um, I, I think being in the right company probably has a lot to do with how well your career is going to go. Uh, I guess prior to Logitech, I was a CEO of a privacy tech startup called Eurocomply, um, which I basically founded immediately after graduating. Um, in addition to that, I, I like to be busy and do lots of things on the side. So I also serve on the external advisory board of my alma mater here in Ireland. And I'm also a contributing lecturer at the Law Society of Ireland, where I lecture mainly on things like CCTV, the Internet of Things, drone law, and, and lots of, I guess, challenging privacy areas. And all the fun spaces, right? You get to do all the, the, the fun things with IoT, drone law, you know, all those unique areas that we really don't have answers to. <laughs> I think so. And, and often it just involves going back to basics. If there's anything that I've learned from dealing with cutting edge things, it's that because there's no specific law, you usually end up going back to basic. Mm -hmm. So having a solid foundation there is really important. Yeah, I always say go back to those foundational principles and you can find them in almost anything that you're doing in the technology, privacy or security space. So I think that's that's a great perspective. Um, so I'm so excited to have you on because you are a woman who sort of sits at this unique apex of technology, privacy, security. You started your own business. You're now um, at this large company dealing with these concerns. So, you know, what really attracted you to a career in privacy and security and how did you find your opportunities? You know, I think a lot of people are looking at ways to break into this space. So we'd love to sort of get your perspective on the best ways to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Like I did not directly set out to start a career in privacy because I think when I started in privacy, people weren't that interested in privacy. So um, like I grew up in the Netherlands, right? So that's kind of where like I'm half Irish and half Dutch, which is why I ended up with this rather unique name. Um, so back in the Netherlands, I was studying law. I was just doing my bachelor degree and I, I got a full scholarship um, to go and do my master's. But the one of the criteria for that particular scholarship was that you went abroad. So I figured it would probably be like really reasonably easy for me to go to Ireland because I had lots of family there. I could stay with my grandmother in, in Crosshaven in, in Cork. 
And um, there happened to be a really interesting technology masters. I was always much more commercial than I was uh, into public law, even though um, the, I guess, vertical relationship now, particularly in privacy, is a very interesting one. But I remember one of my mentors telling me uh, when I was working for the Dutch government on an internship, Emerald, you should just never work for a not-for-profit, basically. So <laughs> off to Ireland I went anyway, and I did my master's in e-law and intellectual property law at, at UCC in Cork. And it was a very small master's at the time. I only had seven other people in my class. So that was that was quite small. But because not that many people were, were in that space at the time, um, I was looking for a master thesis subject. And... I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, like I was open to ideas. So I ended up talking to one of my lecturers. Um, her name is Professor Maeve McDonough. And she's like an expert globally on freedom of information law and data protection and probably a whole bunch of other areas that I'm, I'm missing here. But um, back at, um, in the day, um, I'm not sure if you remember Europe versus Facebook, but it was a website which was essentially run by now very famous Max Schrems from all of the Schrems case law. And at the time he was taking Facebook to task. And I was quite intrigued by this because I was in Ireland and obviously with their HQ being in Dublin, their European HQ, and them being regulated by the Irish regulator, there was a whole lot of action there. And at the same time, um, she suggested to me that I take this new piece of legislation to write my master thesis on. So I got the first draft of the GDPR handed to me back way back in, I think it was late 2012. So, or maybe, no, it was January. Yeah, I think I had got it handed late 2012. And I, I ended up writing my master thesis on um, the right to be forgotten and the importance of forgetfulness in the human experience. So it wasn't just it was an LLM thesis, but it ended up being quite philosophical. And we brought a whole lot of like important things into it from a sociological perspective, from a psychological perspective. And I this was before the, this was before the Google Spain case, right? So this was like pre that decision that really articulated no, the right Google to Google Spain had happened. Google Spain had happened. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, so there was a lot of discussion about should you be able to delete your data and on all of this stuff. But I've spent nine months with this piece of legislation. And what really stood out to me was um, the role of the data protection officer, but also the territorial scope. I was like, this is going to be a whopper of the law. Like, no one is talking about this. I, I really genuinely felt like I was the only person on the planet who knew this would be big. This is the beauty of being a student where you have no idea what's happening in the outside world. Now, naturally, that wasn't the case. But I was working in a space where not that many people had the luxury of spending nine whole months with one piece of legislation and getting to understand it really well. So I figured, how do I scale myself? How can I impart all of this new knowledge I have on other people who now have to solve this problem in their own companies? So this was my logic at the time. Um, So I said, instead of joining a law firm, I'm just going to start my own privacy tech company to solve this problem. Now, there was just one issue. I had a bunch of law degrees, but I knew nothing about business or tech, like nothing. You know, as a legal academic, you're like, when you come out of law school, it's kind of a rude awakening that the world Mm -hmm. doesn't work the way 
the law is written all of the time. So um, I figured I'd do another master's. So I did a master's in business information systems as well. And while I was doing that, I worked on basically building the foundation of, of what this new company was going to be. So after that, um, I literally set up my business and, and, and ran a software slash consultancy firm for a number of years and, and got to go on like an amazing journey as a female entrepreneur. And I think that had a huge hand in being able to build the career I now have because I was given a platform by so many people. I owe loads of people a huge thank you for, for all of the opportunities they've gave me because I, I was talking about the GDPR well before other people really were, before it went mainstream, I guess. We all remember the hype in 2016, 2017, 2018, at really peaking. Um, but people remember that I was talking about this new law years ago. And because of that, people were like, do you want to come talk at this event? Do you want to come talk over here? And, and they gave me a platform to basically give people trainings on it or speak at conferences. And I, I got to make a real name for myself while I was running this business. So I think that is basically how I ended up here because I, I ran that business successfully for a number of years, but entrepreneurship can be really lonely and I think you're a very different person when you're in your I guess early 30s which I am now almost mid-30s but um, then who you are when you're just out of college and it was really time for me to make a change so I saw an opportunity at Logitech that time to be their first hire for the European Privacy Office uh, so I jumped at it and applied um, and was hired <laughs> so that's kind of how I ended up here. That's amazing. And I love that you went into entrepreneurship and then use that to build this foundation that then opened up other opportunities. Because I think sometimes people think, I'm going to go into entrepreneurship, that's what I'm going to do. But it's being flexible to see the opportunities that entrepreneurship can create beyond actually owning and running your own business. And as an entrepreneur myself, I completely understand your comments on loneliness. Because I think that as you're building that team, and if you're leading that team, it's sometimes lonely at the top. Um, so it's definitely definitely addressing sort of the different ways to look at it. So that's, that's a, it's an amazing story. And, an, you know, it's, it's great to hear other female entrepreneurs in tech because I'm always advocating for that. Um, but I think so your journey is really interesting and you sort of sit at this unique juncture right now at Logitech, and this is Logitech and, and many companies, where you're seeing sort of this globalization of privacy. I think you talked about the territorial scope of the GDPR really being, you know, a, pushing out beyond the GDPR borders, you know, what do you see as the challenges for companies to globally address privacy? So recognizing we have this EU approach, we have the US approach, we have this GDPR effect, um, and sort of where do we go from here? It's at a very unique juncture in this spider web of obligations that we have to address on a daily basis. <laughs> Yeah, and I think there's there's loads of challenges, yeah. if, I, if I'm honest. And I think what we've we seen now in the past is this territorial scope is no longer unique to GDPR, right? Like you can you can either attach a law to a human, like you do with CCPA, where we give rights to people who are Californian, no matter where they are, or you can take the European, I guess, fundamental rights approach where you say, if you're a human being on our territory, you have these rights. Um, but I think what we're seeing is 
basically the sheer scale of what is happening in the privacy sphere is it's just a huge challenge. You know, it's it's rapidly changing and it's rapidly developing. Now, I personally think it's fantastic to see new privacy laws um, being introduced around the world, right? Like whether that's in individual states such as um, California or more recently Virginia, or with more sweeping privacy legislation like, you know, in Brazil with the LGPD or now really big topic, which I suspect will be huge, is the new Chinese personal information protection law. And while I, of course, understand that means more research, more work and understanding on on my part and the part of my team, the privacy advocate in me is really is really thrilled to see more people actually gaining statutory privacy rights, because I personally believe that privacy is essential to human dignity and helps us create and manage our boundaries to protect ourselves. Um, mainly from unwarranted interferences, whether that is in a horizontal relationship between you and a business or in a vertical relationship between you and the state. Um, it also really helps manage the power imbalances that exist there, right? As, as part of the society we now live in, those power imbalances can't really be avoided. Um, this is just the nature of the world. But you can do things with legislation that will ease that power imbalance and and at least shift the weight a little bit more towards putting more obligations on those with the power. And I think another huge challenge, and this will come as no surprise to you or anybody else working in this space, is is just the amount of case law we're seeing, (laughs) whether that's in the cookie space or whether that's in the area of international data transfers in particular. You know, often it creates a level of either legal uncertainty or practical uncertainty you just that stuff isn't possible to comply with in the world we live in and I think that we um we saw that most recently with with the privacy shield also being abolished after well to be fair I think lots of people thought the privacy shield was a bit of a chocolate teapot but it did survive for a little while um but I it just because case law happens and there's then immediate effect to that case law, there's no grace period built in, you end up in in a world where lots of companies are just not compliant with how things are supposed to be. And there's no roadmap for how to fix that. So everyone's just kind of scratching their head at the same time going, right, so that happened. (laughs) What do we do next? Yeah, where do we go from here? (laughs) Exactly. And I, I think particularly with the privacy shield, like that's probably going to be a much longer journey now for the US and Europe to iron out in, in the absence of a federal privacy law in the US. And there, you know, you I think you hit on something that's a real struggle in this space, which is keeping up. You know, it feels like if you take one day off, you might have missed an entire shift in privacy, which feels exhausting. So are there tools or techniques you know, that you could, that you use either for someone who's already practicing in this space or can at least someone who's trying to get into this space. Because I often find with a lot of my students and with newer individuals getting into privacy and security, they just feel like they're, they're, they're in this rat race to sort of gain all of this knowledge. So are there any tools or techniques that you've harnessed to sort of help you to address this like very evolutionary world? Yeah, I I often also feel like I'm in that rat race. I I don't think that ever goes away. And I think it's really important, particularly for people who work in privacy. And I know there's lots of very established professionals, but I think all of us 
unless you have a massive team and you're really, really, really on top of this, I think all of us feel that way. And I think we all need to acknowledge that and just sit in that for a while. Um, but there are things you can do, right? Like you can um, keep an eye on the main regulators. I find it really helpful to, for example, stay on top of what the European Data Protection Board is putting out. Um, what key regulators that we would have to deal with are, are saying and reading their guidance because a lot of regulators are actually really good about this, right? They put a lot out. When it comes to case law, that one's hard. Um, best thing to do is look at your main industry bodies. You know, the IAPP will come as no surprise, but is a really good resource. Um, I would also say that Look at, particularly keep an eye on the big tech publications, right? They talk about this stuff all the time, particularly, um, you know, the, the tech crunches of the world. Like uh, there's definitely always publications around massive case law coming up. And then you can attend conferences. Um, if you go to the right ones, that can be really useful. Um, like I, I wouldn't be a person who says, yeah, go to every conference because you could be at a conference every day. Um, it's probably not the best use of your time. But there are lots of like solid experts who would be talking there. And for me personally, I love Twitter. Like I follow lots of privacy leaders on Twitter and uh, I find it really useful to even just see what they think about things because often we need to have an opinion, right? Um, because there something is unclear. And I think when something isn't clear, it's helpful to go talk to your peers. So another thing, which is not related to anything I just said, is build connections with your peers and other companies talk to them, say, what are you doing to fix this problem? Because I don't always know. I might have a suggestion, but I I enjoy a good sanity check every once in a while, right? Yeah, that community aspect is so key. I find for myself, Twitter and following the people that I'm creating um, opportunities to engage with people who are working in this space is sometimes the best because we don't necessarily have a black and white answer and a lot of it's gray. So it's really determining gut reactions. What are you doing? How are you approaching Shrems 2 or cookie notices, et cetera? Uh, um, it's really helpful to sort of benchmark yourself with your peers out there to understand what they're doing. So I think that's that's great advice. Um, and sort of looking, you know, you, you talked about what's going on in a lot of different countries. Um, I definitely agree. China, the Middle East is starting to see privacy pick up. Um, the United States itself, you know, with, like mentioned, Virginia recently passing um, a very CCPA-like legislation, and we have a number of other states that are considering it. Um, you know, do you see this potential for a convergence of a more streamlined approach to privacy across the board? You know, maybe that's through diplomatic channels. I know there's talks between the EU and the U.S. in light of Privacy Shield. I don't think any of us are hopeful of a short-term solution in that, but you know, sitting where you are, are you seeing more of a convergence or more of a divergence and regionalized approach to privacy? I really think that we're looking at a regionalized approach for now, um, which makes me very sad because I would love to see, you know, one law everywhere. But I think that is probably a little bit too much to ask for. Um, 
like it's hard for countries to agree on privacy, right? Um, I think we already discussed this, but I think Safe Harbor and the Privacy Shield um, were examples of this and their replacement will indeed take much longer, I would say. Um, but we will see laws that are inspired by laws that we now know quite well, right? Such as the GDPR. Um, we often, we, we've seen other laws that look very similar. And I think with CCPA, and you just said the one in Virginia looks similar. I think we'll see a lot of inspired by type of laws, which will, at least for privacy professionals, make it a bit easier to wrap our heads around what's required because we might already be doing this. You know, I know some companies give the same privacy rights to everybody, no matter where they are and what law they're subject to. Um, this can be more tedious in some areas, but it can also be beneficial to um, for a uniform approach, but also for the people whose data you're processing, right? Um, I do think that we are now, at least for the US, better positioned for a federal privacy law, as, as many people appointed by the Biden administration have been involved in data protection and privacy work. And of course, this would really benefit the transatlantic um, data flows that came into uh, hot water, I guess, <laughs> recently. Um, but that being said, you know, the current situation in the US in particular, it, it reminds me of Europe pre-GDPR, where you have a really fragmented legal landscape of, of state-owned initiatives, where laws are different in every state, as opposed to one law to rule them all. Um, and I, I, I definitely think that where we're still busted in for a proper right regarding this uh the, the global landscape of privacy, I think it will remain challenging. Yeah, and, and I, I totally echo that. And I think one of the challenges, and, and you sort of hit on this, is that we don't even have a common understanding of what privacy is. You know, if you're in the European side, it's a human right. You sort of touched on this. Um, when you come to the United States, it's not as clear exactly what that is. And I find this in a lot of privacy sort of controls, privacy initiatives, when I say a word, it might mean something very differently to me than it could mean to you, to the technology groups, the developers, et cetera. I mean, even the concept of what is or is not anonymized data is not really well understood or standardized across industries and regions. So, you know, I think I think you're right. We're probably in for more of a wild ride before things might settle down <laughs> in the in the coming years. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you completely. And just on the, there's a difference of approach, right? Like in in Europe, it's it comes from a human fundamental human rights sort of place. In the U.S., it's more of a consumer protection type of angle. And then when you go to um, Asia, you'll see, particularly with China, being more security driven. So there's different approaches and even the verbiage is different. You know, in Europe, there's a real distinction between data protection and privacy, whereas we hear the term data privacy quite frequently now. And I've come to accept that this is a more universal term that doesn't really sit well with my European legal background because I'm like, they are different rights. They're not the same. Um, but I think that like we don't even know whether those distinctions are going to be universal. And I know it's a technicality, but the lawyer in me just kind of enjoyed this. <laughs> I know I always make that distinction with my students. Privacy is a distinctly different thing than data protection. Um, and you have to think about them in these two domains, even though they they do interact. But that's a great example of sort of this 
this weird space where everyone's using different terms to mean different things. And we're, we're sort of somewhat talking past each other sometimes, I think, when we say it. <laughs> yeah, but we are all talking about it, which I think is a great development. I mean, privacy is like a really hot topic right now and has been for a couple of years. And I can tell you, I felt like I was screaming into the abyss when I first started in this space. There were only a couple of other other crazy people who were really into it when it wasn't really, you know, when people weren't really into it. So I'm, I'm glad that there is dialogue because that's step one, right? And I think that, of course, we all want to have a job at the end of all this, but I think it's really important, um, particularly most people who I know who work in this space, work in this space because it allows them to work in a field where what they do on a day-to-day basis aligns with their own values. And I think it's really important. So part of me, at least, and this is going to sound terrible, but I like being part of the good guys, right? Like I think we were trying to protect people's rights. And of course, we take care of the businesses we work in as well. But at the same time, we get to do something that's good for society. That's how I feel about it. And I think the more people who are talking about this, the more we're going to see an impact on what government does and eventually everything will be okay. (laughs) This is is how I'm thinking about it. I like that. A very positive message, a very positive message. Um, Positive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to ask you one final question. I ask this of all of my guests that come on, but is there any recent book you have read on cyber privacy law that you could recommend to the audience? Oh, there are so many. And I actually have them written down because I didn't want to forget get any. So I'm not just going to name one. I, like I know the economist um, named Privacy as Power as their book of the year, right? I, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so no doubt that one is worth reading. I haven't gotten to that one yet, but I think there's a couple of suggestions depending on who you are and who's listening right now. Uh, I think in terms of if you're looking for a really good handbook, on privacy, particularly European data protection law, I think starting with um, Dennis Kelleher's book, just called EU Data Protection Law, is an excellent handbook. I just like having it, and then I can open it if I have forgotten which case law goes with which rule, and then uh, it's there, right? Like I, I like having books like that that I can just consult quickly and not go through down the internet rabbit hole. Um, because sometimes when you just Google something, you're there three hours later. Um, then in terms of privacy by design, I love Professor Woodrow Hartsock's book called The Privacy Blueprint, which is really excellent and, and kind of shows, among other things, how design impacts privacy, which um, like exposing dark patterns and, and other nefarious ways of um, designing products to essentially con individuals into providing more data. I think that's a really important book because we talk about privacy by design, but there there aren't a huge amount of books that actually tell you this is what that looks like and this is the opposite of that. So Mm -hmm. um, Privacy Blueprint is a really good one. And then the list can never be complete without the age of surveillance capitalism, right? That Mm -hmm. one has to go in by uh, Shosanna Zuboff. I I think that book in particular for anybody who read it, who's not in privacy in particular, I think it just, it's eye-opening, right? And whether you agree with it or not, um, because there is plenty of, like, everybody has an opinion on the book, 
which is great because it means people are talking about it. <laughs> so um, I really do think that that was a very important book, no matter what people's opinion is of, of what's in it. Um, it. It just showed the sheer scale of, of surveillance. I completely agree. That one's actually sitting right behind me here. <laughs> yeah, I found um, it hard to read at times because even as a privacy professional, you, I think you know, like you should know anyway. Um, but still seeing it in black and white all put together in the one book, I still found it really startling. I, I, I had to take space thought. from it. I had to, I was like reading it and I would put it down for a little while because I had the same, yeah. where I was like, you knew it, but to, see, to read it is different. <laughs> yeah, I, I found it, I found it hard to read, which is why it's so important to read it, but it's definitely not light reading. <laughs> the mm. other two books are probably better, um, which is why I kind of want to give three, like one is kind of your, you know, this is your day-to-day privacy guide for when you don't know. And then this is like how you do it and not do it when you're actually building product. And then the last one is if you just want to be slightly horrified, this is for you. <laughs> Well, this was fantastic, Emerald. I really appreciate you coming on. So many useful insights for everyone in this space. Um, Really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you so much for joining me today. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. And thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.